0: can be seated this morning. If you've got your Bibles with you, you can open them to Acts chapter 5. We're going to be in verses 1 through 16. Uh, This morning as we continue our work through there, uh, thank you to Josh for finishing out Acts chapter 4 uh, last weekend. And so now we're just going to continue kind of our methodical work through the book of Acts as we consider uh, the early church and the commission to go to the ends of the earth with the good news. Of the gospel. And so I hope in the first handful of weeks we've been in this that you've been encouraged and strengthened in what it means to be a disciple and a follower of Jesus and one who would see disciples made and grown and developed and sent out. And so we're just joining in with the church as we read about it this morning, but we also uh, look around and consider how uh, the work that the church started in Acts 5 is the work that's still going on uh, today. And so Uh, Hopefully, nobody drops dead this morning, uh, but we're going to work our way through the text and uh, hopefully come out on the other side with a better understanding of why this story is here and how it helps us better understand what God is doing in the early foundation of the church in Jerusalem. The following comes from a March 2005 issue of Reader's Digest. It shares the following, In the world of technology, there is a new development called hypersonic sound. The inventor Elwood Woody Norris has engineered sound waves to travel like a laser beam for about 150 yards. This allows sound to be heard by a person in a particular place, but not by those immediately around them. You could be listening to music or specific instructions while those standing next to you would be left in total silence. If you move out of the tightly formed path of these unique sound waves, you too will be unaware of any noise. God's communication with us is very similar to these sound waves. We must be in the right place to hear the Holy Spirit. And when we're there, the message is clear. If we move away from the pathway of His voice, we become unaware of the fact that He is communicating with us, and we consequently miss the message. And so today, as we unpack the text, we are met with an often overlooked and underexplained story involving two members of the early church, Ananias and Sapphira. The sudden nature of their death and the lack of follow-up can leave us perhaps with more questions than answers. However, my prayer for us is that we would see this story and what follows as a necessary warning to how seemingly innocuous sins can limit and threaten the power of the Spirit at work in the local church. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful this morning. We are grateful for the word that would instruct us. We're grateful for the word that would warn us. We're grateful for the word that would correct us we're grateful for the word that would comfort us and so as we consider acts five this morning that luke was inspired by the spirit to write down for us and we consider the the tough way in in which we have to wrestle with the text regarding ananias and sapphira god i pray this morning that our hearts would be open that the spirit would work that we would be tender to the prompting and the leading of the spirit as we encounter your word this morning i pray that we would leave seeing jesus more clearly being more grateful for the gift of our salvation and more committed to sharing the good news with others. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I just want to reread the first 11 verses before we unpack this rather dramatic scene in the early part of the church's life. Acts 5, 1-11, But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It's a very somber warning passage in Acts chapter 5, the first 11 verses. We don't get very much out of this that makes its way into our common greeting card idea of faith. You've not picked up a card recently or a coffee mug at a Hobby Lobby that says, Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out we're not really sure what to do with Peter's kind of stark warning right to Sapphira before she too breathes her last. This particular passage from Acts is rather worrisome and quite troubling when we first encounter it for ourselves. For honest, it feels out of step with everything we've read and seen in the early church up to this point. We've seen Jesus ascend. We've seen the Spirit poured out at Pentecost. We've heard Peter preach the first sermon. We've seen huge numbers of people respond in faith. We've seen the early church model healthy gospel community. And we've seen the church bear up under the weights of the beginnings of persecution. And so we are left to ask, why is this story here? What purpose does it serve? Is there anything we can glean from it that is applicable to our lives in the church today? I think those are honest questions that we would ask. It seems like part of the family history of the church that we would just gloss over the way we gloss over certain parts of our own family's history that we're not too proud to share. You just be like, yeah, there were a couple people here, uh, some unfortunate things happened, they're not with us any longer, nobody's clear if they moved away or if they died. That's how we would kind of approach it, but Luke is very detailed in what happens, and I believe it helps us understand more clearly what God was after in this unfolding of this story. But first, let's go to the plain reading of the text. A couple, undoubtedly new converts, as most people are at this time, finds themselves enjoying the euphoric highs and profound victories of the early church that's finding its footing in the world. Perhaps they were there and heard Peter's first sermon, and they've seen fellow believers holding all things in common and making sacrifices for the sake of community, most notably Barnabas, who we talked about last week in Acts 4:36 and 37. And in all of the commotions and goings on, Ananias and Sapphira decide that they too will join in, that they will sell some or perhaps all of the land they own and bring the proceeds of the sale to the local church. However, somewhere between the cell and the next gathering of the church, they devise a plan to deceive their family of faith and to attempt to deceive God. They are going to claim all the money made from their business transaction is being sacrificially given to support the ongoing work of the new church, but the truth is they have withheld some for themselves. This deception is immediately confronted by Peter, and this is the issue at hand. The issue at hand is not... And you can see it in how Peter questions Ananias. You own the land. It was yours to control. It was yours when you owned it. You made a plan to give the appearance that you were giving everything, but you had held some back for yourself. Now, there was no rule in place in the early church that said, if you sell property, all the proceeds have to go to the church. It was you sell the property, you be a good steward of the money, what you decide to give to support the work of the church, give cheerfully and generously. And if you want to hold some back for yourself, that's fine. But the issue is in the deception of Ananias and Sapphira, that they would position themselves as ones who were giving it all when in reality they were holding some back for themselves. And we can kind of pick up on this in Peter's questioning. He says, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? So Peter is very clear here. After the sale, it's at your disposal. No one from the church was with you watching what was marked in the transaction of sale to make sure that all those pennies and all those dollars showed up. It was yours to decide what to do with. Therefore, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And later he confronts Sapphira. Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Peter's concern is not that they've lied to him. Peter's concern is not necessarily that they've duped other believers in what they're professing to be a sacrificial gift. Peter's concern that he addresses to Ananias and also to Sapphira is that Satan has found an inroad through the money they've obtained to cause them to be deceitful, to cause them to be deceptive. And it's often the case that amoral things, things that have no morality, immediately tied to them like the sale of property and land can become the means by which the enemy of the church and the enemy of our souls finds a foothold to begin to tempt us to try to be deceptive towards other believers and to our God. And that's what had happened here. Perhaps the sale had been more than they anticipated. And they thought, you know, but if they know we've got it, if they know we sold it for this much, maybe people are going to ask us for more money based off of how much we made on the sale. For whatever reason and however they arrive there, they agree that they're going to say this is everything and they're okay with the lie about it because it's not like it's a harmful lie. Oh, we've, Said we'd give you 20,000, but we kept 2,000 for ourselves. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But the issue before the church, before Peter, and that confronts Ananias and Sapphira is this the prompting to lie did not come from the Holy Spirit at work in you. The prompting to lie came from the Father of lies. And this is kind of what frames out the warning for us. Sin is a serious issue. Sin, even the little white lie of how much money we're actually giving, is a serious issue because it threatens the unity, the purity, and the power of the church. Even something that would appear to only affect these two people. If you lie over something like this, the reasoning from the text seems to indicate you'll lie about the next thing and the next thing and the next thing once you think it's okay to lie to your fellow believers and try to lie to God about this small thing it becomes easier to excuse the lie about the bigger thing and all of a sudden you're lying to cover sin after sin after sin and the unity and the purity of the church and the power of the spirit at work in the church becomes throttled or choked off when sin is allowed to thrive in that manner. So this is what's being confronted. Peter ties the actions of the couple to the fact that their hearts have been filled by the lies and the deception of Satan. And these are the hallmarks of the enemy of God and the church. Jesus himself says of the devil in John eight forty four, 44, He, Satan, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. You could ask yourself, are Ananias and Sapphira even believers? Or are they those who were caught up in the moment and just were going along with it, those whose the seed fell on the path or the seed fell in the rocky ground and they have this evidence of life, but then it's choked out by the cares of the world. The consensus seems to be that Ananias and Sapphira were genuine believers who made a very serious mistake, who committed a very serious sin in the early life of the church. So the consensus seems to be not that these were somehow false converts, but they were genuine believers who made a serious transgression, and while the eternal ramifications of their sin were handled by Christ, the immediate consequence of their sin would be drastic and severe. But before we get there, let's take a step back. Because I believe if we're honest, it's not hard to imagine how they got to this point. And if we're going to take the life of Ananias and Sapphira seriously, the writing of Luke seriously, and how it would impact us today, we need to see how easy it is for good motives to be interrupted by selfishness and self-deception. This is what Kent Hughes writes. Why did Ananias and Sapphira do what they did? Possibly the Christian life was new and mysterious to them, and they just wanted to be on the inside of things, to really belong. Or perhaps they craved special recognition by the leadership. Or maybe they were swept up by the bandwagon effect. Applause or acceptance or acclaim may have been overly important to them. At the worst, maybe they were making a crass attempt to rise within the power structure, though it is unlikely they begin with such low intentions. Perhaps it was when they saw Barnabas' great generosity. They genuinely wanted to follow suit, but their motivations were mixed, and when the money was at hand, they could not live up to their avowed intention. They were undoubtedly new Christians, and the habits of the old life were only a breath away. They overestimated themselves, a common error of new believers. I would add to Kent Hughes' statement that the overestimation of ourselves is not only common in new believers, but it is common in those of us who have walked with Jesus for a very long time. We make grand promises of what we will do for God. We make grand promises that if only this thing will go our way, we will devote everything that comes out of it to the work of the ministry and the Lord. And then it happens, and then all of a sudden we find it hard to live into our own avowed intentions of sacrifice and commitment to the kingdom. It's an easy thing when you don't have the thing you think you want to say, if I get it, I promise I'll use it for the kingdom. It's another thing when your hands finally hold it. And it's hard for us It is hard for us to open our hands up and let go of the thing we thought would bring us such joy and such happiness. It's hard for us to follow through with the intentions that were stated before we were in the position we're now in. The warning is to not overestimate ourselves. The warning is to be honest about who we are. The warning is to be honest about what may happen if the Lord answers the prayer for this specific thing. The Importance for us is to be aware of the ways that we would even lie to ourselves. Convincing ourselves that what we're after is the kingdom and the power and the glory that belong to Jesus alone, when we're really after our kingdom and our power and our glory. We are haunted by the patterns of behavior and the way that we reacted when we were not yet believers. But we have put on Christ's righteousness and we are walking in this progressive sanctification towards ever-increasing holiness until Jesus calls us home. None of us are immune from the old habits and patterns of life that we knew before we knew Jesus. And they stalk us and they wait for us and the enemy of our souls and the enemy of, of, of the church waits for the precise moment where something that would be a good thing can be used to begin to bring impurity and disunity and division into the church. Because what the enemy of the church is more aware of than we are is how potent the power of the Spirit is at work where there is unity and purity and right confession of sin. We are in Christ, and so there's nothing, Jesus says, that the enemy can do. There's no way we can be separated, Paul would write in Romans 8, and Jesus would say, there's no one that will snatch them who are mine out of my hand that the Father has given to me. And so at a certain point, Satan knows that he has lost us to the kingdom. And so if he has lost us to the kingdom, then the next best thing, the next best avenue for him to derail us is to introduce unconfessed sin that would defile and limit the power of the Spirit at work in the church. To limit our effectiveness as a local body, to reach our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends with the gospel. What Peter and the early church were not advocating for was perfection. The issue was not that Ananias and Sapphira sinned. It's that they were deceptive. It's that they had no Intention, outside of being confronted by Peter to ever own up to what they had done. This is the warning of their life in this story we have in Acts 5, 1 through 11. That we would not be those who overestimate ourselves. Because when we overestimate ourselves, we open our hearts and minds up to the lies of an enemy who would love nothing more than to turn our godly ambition against us for ruin. And we think just if we've got enough godly ambition that the enemy will leave us alone. Sometimes the enemy wants you to see the full fruit of your godly ambition and then in the last moment turn it on its head and use it for our ruin. So we would do well to be very careful in how we assess ourselves. And this is why community matters. This is why the presence of other believers in your life matters. Because it helps us from falling off on two sides of the error. One is the overestimation of ourselves. Somebody needs to know you well enough to say, hey man, that ain't it for you. I know you think you can do that, but that, look, I, I've known you well enough to know if you actually get that thing, if the Lord actually answers this prayer, it's not going to be good for you. Do you sh- are you sure this is what you want the Lord to do? It keeps us from overestimating ourselves. It keeps us from committing to things we know we can't keep and do. On the other hand, having believers around us, causes us to not also underestimate ourselves. Well, I couldn't do that. There's no way God would use me to do that. We need to be reminded on both ends, not to overestimate ourselves, but also not to underestimate ourselves and the power of the spirit at work in our lives that would empower us to finish the mission that God has called us to. So we both, that's Community forms a buttress to keep us from falling off on either side of that. And now we move on to Acts 5, verses 12 through 16. Luke continues writing, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The stunning thing regarding Luke's meticulous account of the early church. We talked about this in the opening to Acts. Luke is a meticulous historian. There are names and dates and places included so that there will be no way to kind of second guess what he's written down as the account of the early church. Luke is painstakingly clear in how he communicates what's going on in Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem out into Judea and Samaria and we're going to see into Rome and the ends of the earth. What is stunning then if we're following and tracking with Luke is this. My man will give almost a full chapter to describing the sea travel of Paul later. Almost a full chapter, we're going to dive into why in the world it matters where Paul traveled. So it is stunning how little time is devoted to what just transpired. It's like the blurb in the news before the commercial break. Oh, these two people sold some land, and we confronted them, and they died. Oh, and by the way, now many signs and wonders, it's like he can't even, it's like that feels just jarring that we would read this, and then he's on to that. Luke moves back into recounting the church's power through, dis- through the Spirit on display for the watching world to see. The fear of God, the works of the apostles, and the now circulating story of the death of Ananias and Sapphira cause people to be hesitant regarding believing and trusting in the Christ who was professed by the apostles. So let's, let's just join in with the first church here in this moment. The apostles and roughly 120 are in the upper room when the Spirit is poured out. You come down out of that room, out into the street, you're able to communicate with people in their own language, and the people around you hearing it go, I think they might be drunk. It's 9 in the morning, but they got started last night and never stopped. They are hammered right now. There's suspicion around everything you say and everything that you do. There's this uncertainty around the newness of what you're saying about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But you've seen the Spirit at work. But others have seen the Spirit at work. The authorities and those who currently hold power in Jerusalem have seen the Spirit at work. And they begin to come after you with the first wave of persecution, of questioning, of wanting to know why you're doing the things that you're doing. This doesn't seem like the best way to get your message further traction in the watching world is to now have a story circulating that two people who told a little white lie dropped dead and were buried side by side within three hours of each other. This seems like poor PR. This is not how you grow a movement. Be considered drunk. Be questioned by the authorities. Be held overnight And then have those who are a part of your following and a part of your gathering drop dead and be buried. So you can understand when they make their way into Solomon's portico, where they were known for going and sharing the good news of Jesus, you can understand the next day when you show up, people might not want to stand too close to you. They don't know what might happen to them. It creates this moment of clarity, though. If you take everything that's come before and we get to here, It provides a moment of clarity for the watching world to decide if they are willing to accept the cost of following Jesus. It's one thing to know the cost of our salvation has been paid by Jesus. That is what everybody lines up for, and everybody wants a piece of And we want everybody to know and understand that the gift of salvation is a gift of grace, fully completed by Jesus on the cross and vindicated in his resurrection. We want them to know that the cost of their salvation has been paid. But we need to be clear about the cost associated with following him. And that's what this provides in this moment. Even with the death of Ananias and Sapphira, the signs and wonders go on. And even though there's this uncertainty about what has happened, the rest held them in high esteem. While they weren't sure about what to make of what was going on with this new sect within Judaism that claimed Christ was who he says he was, there was an integrity And a congruency in their lives that caused people who didn't fully understand to still hold them in high esteem. With all of that in play, you would think, well, this is where the church kind of falls off. This is where we hit the rough patch. This is where we press pause on new converts and new believers joining the family of God. 13 says, None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Then verse 14 seems to contradict verse 13. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. There is both a hesitation and an acceptance. There is both a reservation and a desire for the life that was offered in Jesus. The NIV Study Bible observes this apparent paradox, no one dared join, more and more believed, shows that the church's growth is not superficial, but comes from those who weigh the cost and are truly committed. Pruning bad growth, Ananias and Sapphira, produces new good growth. This is what Jesus himself talked about in John 15, 1 through 11, where he gives us this beautiful picture of I am the vine and you are the branches and there's a pruning that must take place so that the fullness of the fruit of the vine could be realized. And that's what we see happening here. These people, stunned and uncertain, get the honest opportunity to weigh the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. We would do well when we're sharing the good news of the gospel to not only share the good news about what Christ has done, but to be honest about what it costs to follow Jesus. And I think that brings us to two very important questions to ask. Do we know from the scriptures what Christ commands of us when we follow him? Can we clearly lay out that cost to others? And if you're sharing the good news of the gospel with non-believers and you're asking them to consider Jesus, would they see in your life evidences of the cost you're telling them it will be for them to follow Jesus? Or are you selling them a cost you yourself are not willing to pay to follow Jesus? This is where an incongruency comes in in our evangelism that causes people to second-guess and back away from the good news of the gospel. We tell them the good news about what Jesus has done. We tell them the cost it is to follow him. But there's no evidence in our life, in our day-to-day, that we have endured any cost to follow him. We put the burden of the cost of following him right back on Jesus. The good news of the gospel is you never have to work your way to salvation. But the warning of the gospel is you follow Jesus at your own risk. Because there is a cost associated. And the beautiful thing is, is that if we would trust, and I was at a conference this weekend and one of the other speakers said it, we contend, Christ converts. So if we would just be faithful to contend for the faith and lay out the true cost of what it means to follow Jesus, perhaps it would be Christ and not our sales pitch that would save people. We're so worried about the sales pitch and so unconcerned with the power of Christ to change hearts that we mix and jumble up our presentation of what it means to love and to follow Jesus. But we've got to make sure that we're not trying to run an end around on the cost of following Jesus ourselves. We also see in these words in acts of the apostles the answer to the prayers of the church in Acts 4:29 and 30. The church prayed this that Josh walked us through last week. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then what do we read in 12? Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. Now, drop down into verse 15 or 16. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. The very thing they had prayed for, God did not delay to answer. What they prayed and asked God to do for the sake of people knowing who Jesus was, God has answered. But what we need to see here, what helps us make sense of Acts 5, 12 through 16 and Acts 1 through 11 is this. The church was committed to unity and purity within as they witnessed the spiritual authority of the Spirit at work in and through them. In fact, the presence of the Spirit was so strong in Peter that the Spirit's power seemed to emanate from him to the point that even his shadow was a point of healing for the sick and the afflicted. Peter's shadow is not some magical shadow that if we could somehow recreate, we could heal everyone we walk past. You've got to think of Peter's shadow in terms of Paul's handkerchief that we're going to see in Acts 19, But more importantly, think about it in terms of the sick woman in Luke who touched the hem of Jesus' garment and was healed. This is our touch. Luke has already written about something similar to what we see with Peter's shadow. It's not that Jesus' cloak had any special powers in it, and if anyone had it on and you touched it, they too would be healed. It was the faith of the woman in Jesus to be who he said he was that healed her in the same way it was faith in the God that Peter professed that caused sometimes when his shadow fell on people for them to be healed. Peter is not the hero of the story here. It was a strange but powerful work of the Spirit through Peter in this moment. It was the faith that the sick and afflicted had in the God who was actively at work in Peter that led to their healing, not some magical power in the shadow itself. And it is this brief interlude of the signs and wonders of the apostles that we get the other half of the bracket that helps us make sense of the story of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5, 1 through 11. As the ESV Study Bible notes, the positive picture of the community sharing is marred by the account of a couple who abused the practice by holding back a portion of a gift while claiming to be giving the totality to the church. The context is important to note. The incident 51 through 11 is bracketed by references to the Spirit's power in 431 and 33 and 512 through 16. The Spirit was closely linked to the unity of the fellowship manifested in their sharing. Ananias and Sapphira abused the fellowship through their deception and thereby threatened its unity. So we don't lift Acts 5, 1 through 11 up out of Scripture and try to understand it in its own standing. It's written and given to us in the exact spot it needed to be given so that we could rightly understand it by looking both to the just before it and just after it. The Spirit of God powerfully works through communities of believers who are giving themselves to unity, to purity, and to seeing the name of Jesus exalted. That's the direction everyone needs to be pulling on the rope. It's not a call to sinless perfection. It's not a call to God will work only when we're perfect. It's a call for us to consider what are the unconfessed, unknown sins of my life that would throttle or choke out the Spirit's work in our midst. It's a consideration of perhaps one of the reasons we struggle to see the spirit at work in the church today is because we know we're still sinners, and so we excuse our sins and say, well, God's going to do his work anyway. Listen, if your theology of God's sovereignty calls you to, causes you to be an excuse maker for your own sin, you've got your theology wrong. God's sovereignty in accomplishing his purpose is not a permission slip for the church to go, well, we're all sinners, so what can we do about it? We abuse a good and right doctrine of God's control of all things when we use it as a permission slip or a hall pass to continue to indulge in our favorite sins without worry or concern about what it may be doing to the power of God at work in the church. We long for revival. We long to see people come to know Jesus. We long for the church to be this countercultural example of what life in the kingdom looks like. But we flirt and we engage and we continue to date our sins. I'm not advocating for you the pressure of being sinless, I'm just asking you to consider. Would you be okay with your spouse, or your significant other, your boyfriend or girlfriend, would you be okay with them professing their love to you, but maintaining an almost flippant attitude towards how that love is displayed as they continue to date those that they knew before you? That wouldn't fly, that's not the mark of a healthy relationship. But in much the same way, we commit our lives to Jesus. We profess our love and our devotion to him. And yet we maintain our affairs. We maintain our former way of life. We try to have the best of both worlds. And I don't think we weigh enough and consider enough the story of Ananias and Sapphira that should cause us to draw back and go, maybe, maybe I should be a little more clear in following Jesus. Maybe there are some hard conversations of confession and repentance I need to have to get myself out of these relationships that continue to harm the most important relationship I have, which is your relationship with Jesus. And the truth of any church at any point that has ever met to know and to love and to exalt Jesus together is in some way We realize the full effectiveness of the Spirit's work in and through us to the degree that we're all willing to own our sins. To the degree that we're willing to be honest about where the struggles are. That we're willing to be honest about the hand we reach for, not the nail-pierced hand, but the other hands we would reach for when times get tough, when we feel stressed when the anxiety overwhelms, when the fear creeps in, when the doubts come in. We want to see God work in and through us. We've got to be serious about knowing where our sins are, confessing those sins, and trusting in the gospel that we're sharing with others that it would be true for us. That God hears, that God forgives. The following is shared online and provides a fitting illustration to close our time together. During a tour of a large manufacturing plant, a visitor noticed a man using a fiery torch of high intensity to work on huge slabs of steel. Operating from a blueprint on a nearby table, a pointer traced the pattern and then by a clever system of levers enlarged the design as it was burned into the metal. There were times, however, when the flame would not make any impression. When this happened, a chemical substance was applied to the resisting patch and immediately the cutting could be resumed. The worker explained that although the torch was able to go through clean steel eight inches thick, if it encountered the slightest film of rust on the surface, the flame would not penetrate it. A flame so powerful, it can go clean through eight inches thick steel could be stopped by the slightest appearance of rust. Rendered useless. All the power in the world, rendered useless by the tiniest speck of dust. But the flame's power could be realized again, only, only if the operator was willing to stop and clean up the mess. The flame of the Spirit burns bright in the church. But hidden and unconfessed sin stops it in its tracks. And the only way to see the full intensity and power of the Spirit at work in the church is to be quick to confess. To be honest to confess. And to trust in the good news of the gospel we proclaim. We do not want to be those who minimize or downplay or try to choke out the Spirit's work in the church. May we be a church that pursues the life of holiness we have been called to. May we be a church where we are quick to confess and quick to forgive. And as we do so, may the Lord be pleased to work mightily through us by the Spirit's power to the worship and praise of our Savior. Let's pray.